Hi, this is Ben Lola, Back to the Bible Canada. Today we begin a new five-week series, continuing on a series we did earlier this year on the book of Romans. This series focuses on Romans chapter 5 to 8. It's called The Power of the Gospel. Over the next few weeks, Dr. Neufeld will help us discover that the secret to living a life of godliness is not in us, but in the gospel itself. So let's begin. I have a very vivid memory, and I think it happened when I was 19. I came to Christ quite dramatically when I was 18. My long warfare against God had come to an end. I was defeated and Christ had triumphed. I was born again and to my amazement found that I was counted righteous in Christ. My sins were forgiven. I was reconciled to God and all the promises of scripture were yes in Christ Jesus. Great news. But in this, I have a clear memory I wish to share. I think I was 19, and I had gone to hear an evangelist share the good news, and after everyone was gone, I was left alone with the evangelist, and I had a question. I told him that I had been converted a year earlier, but I was struggling with sinful inclinations. The evangelist had said, if you come to Christ, Christ will give you victory over your sin, and I confided with him that, for me, it didn't feel that way. Did I do something wrong in my conversion? What was going on? Why was I having this experience? Now, the reason the memory remains so vivid with me is because the evangelist gave me no answer. He looked about as confused as I was. Now, I don't remember feeling disappointed that he had no answer. I'm not critical of him to this day. But I knew I needed to find answers. Was I not genuinely converted? I did love Christ. I had repented of my sin, and I did believe that his death on the cross was for me. But I needed to learn how to live with a kind of freedom from sin I thought might be available to me. It seems to me, as I have observed church life and Christian teaching over the course of my life, that there are two equally destructive heresies at work. Both of these false teaching come with three propositions. Here's the the first of the heresies. Proposition number one, God is good. Proposition number two, you're good too. Proposition number three, you should get all the advantages from being good that you now rightfully deserve. I do hear that kind of message often preached. But not long ago, I heard of one preacher who preached that kind of a message being sentenced to prison for having misdirected millions of dollars from his church budget. It turns out he wasn't nearly as good as he had told everyone he was. Maybe his hearers weren't that good either. But here's the opposite heresy, and it also comes with three propositions as well. Proposition number one, God is good. Proposition number two, you're bad. Proposition number three, you should be ashamed of yourself and fix that right away. And if the truth be told, there are millions of Christians who labor in perpetual guilt, struggling against their sin and constantly fighting a losing battle. Some live a lifetime with a defeatist attitude, never growing in the grace and holiness, and many die that way. But others just can't stand the guilt anymore and either abandon whatever faith they have or join the group in the first heretical camp and start running around saying they are good after all, all that guilt is not from God. Today I'm starting a new series, and I hope it will be for many a most liberating series. I'm calling this five-week series, The Power of the Gospel. For the next five weeks, we're going to be doing a detailed study of Paul's teaching recorded in Romans 5 to 8. What we will find from this is that all the power you need to lead a life of godliness is already provided not in you, but in the gospel. Not sure you believe me? 
In this section of Scripture, we will learn, according to chapter 5, verse 20, that where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Indeed, grace reigns through Jesus Christ. And in chapter 6, verse 5, you will learn that you are united with Christ in his death and in his resurrection. And in chapter 6, verse 14, we read that sin will no longer have dominion over you. And then later, you will learn that in Christ you have been made a slave of righteousness. And in chapter 7, verses 4 to 6, we will learn that we have been released from the power of the law and now serve in a new way by the Spirit. And who can read Romans 8 without becoming breathless and overwhelmed by the power of the Spirit made available to everyone who believes? Let's try an illustration. You should see my garage. I have stuff in there, more stuff than you can imagine. I know I need a bigger garage. Part of the stuff I have in there comes from my dad. You know, my dad passed away a number of years ago, but long before his death, my mother and father moved into an apartment, and dad did not want to give up a lot of his carpentry tools. I didn't want him to give them up either because some of that stuff filled me with childhood memories. So I inherited his table saw, his miter saw, his toolbox, and all manner of tools that could be put to great use. But I don't use those tools very much. They just sit there. You know, some time ago, I gave my dad's table saw away to a man who really could use it, and I've slowly been divesting myself of much of it. But here's the illustration. What I have in the form of tools would cause some to drool. They would say, wow, if if I had those tools, I could do so much with them. But, But, you know, for me, because I put greater value into writing and reading and research than I do into carpentry, the tools, well, they just kind of sit there. I wonder how many of us feel that way about our Christian life. We hear that God has given us all that we need for life and godliness, all the tools we need for triumphant living, and so many people around us are living such powerful and vision-directed and fulfilled, happy lives that when you think about yourself, well, you kind of feel that all God's tools are just going to waste in your spiritual garage, just kind of sitting there and collecting dust. And so we've got to correct that. We tell ourselves that we need to learn what tools God has made available to us, and we're going to learn how to use them. And then from these tools, we're going to create a victorious Christian life. But I wonder if you've noticed that as you do this, you've accepted the heresy I spoke of earlier. Proposition number one, God is good. He sent his son to die for me, and he provided me with all the tools I need to live a victorious Christian life. Proposition number two, I am bad. After all that God has done by giving me the tools of the victorious Christian life, I have left them collecting dust in my garage. And proposition number three, I I should be ashamed of myself. And I should make a resolution to learn how to use the tools and live victoriously. I'm going to try harder to use the resources I already have. I hope you see what a works-based, repeated cycle of frustration you're on. Clearly, this belief system is not the gospel. Some time ago, about a year ago now, we did a series studying Romans 1 to 4, and if you listen to it, I called that series the heart of the gospel. You know, in that series, we really did discover that God is good, and we really discovered that we are bad, far worse than we ever imagined. Indeed, we were so bad that we learned that no one is righteous, not even one. We learn that we've all turned from God and that none of us, not one, actually seeks after God. In spite of God's goodness, we have all turned our own way. But proposition number three was lacking from our study. I mean, the one that said that we should be ashamed and try harder. 
Instead, we learn that the righteous God, while we were yet sinners, sent his son to be the wrath-bearing, bloody sacrifice on our behalf, that he paid the penalty for our sins. Our response, our only response, is faith. We are made righteous before God by his grace. And we simply trust that what Christ has accomplished on the cross was sufficient to forgive all of our sins. And so we found out that we are justified by faith. That is, we are made righteous and presented clean and absolved of all our sins simply by faith, meaning that we are made righteous not by our own efforts or merits, but by the merits of Christ alone. And we simply count on what Christ has done and accomplished on our behalf. Now, here's the searching question that Paul asked the Galatian Christians in Galatians 3 verse 2. There he asked, did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? And then forward to verse 5. Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and work miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing of faith? You know the point? Some Christians are silly enough to think that they get saved by grace through faith alone, and then they think they grow in holiness by works. Get in by faith, then stay in by works. And therefore, Paul asks the Galatians, who has bewitched you? Who pulled a wool over your eyes? Who gave you such a non-gospel? I mean, how did you get from faith alone to works alone? Then later in that same chapter, Paul will say that all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. I hope you're seeing the point. If you want to grow in your faith, if you want to become more Christ-like, if you want to win the war over the impulses of the flesh, If you want to triumph over your struggle with temptation, if you want the freedom Christ offers as an experiential reality, all these things are only available by faith. Are you ready to grasp that? Are you ready for the only pathway there exists to Christian joy and freedom? Now, when we come back, I'm going to say five weeks worth on this subject, and what I say I hope will change your life. As Christians, we know that Christ gives us victory over sin, but practically, this is rarely a smooth or easy journey. It's so critical to be aware of the dangers that we all may fall into, and Dr. Neufeld has pointed out. We must understand above all that the power lies not in us, but in the gospel itself. This is a great truth, and one we'll explore more as we continue in our study of Romans chapter 5 to 8. Well, it's 2016 already, and another year of ministry has gone by. But I know that what we've been able to accomplish in this past year has only been possible with your prayers and support. So on behalf of the entire team at Back to the Bible Canada, we'd like to extend our deepest appreciation for your special gifts towards our December year-end goal. And please keep us in your prayers as we begin a new year with a renewed vision to declare God's Word boldly and faithfully. Thanks again. And God bless. Now let's go back to the Bible with Dr. John Newfeld. I wonder if you've ever heard of a practice called self-flagellation. This has been practiced in monasteries for centuries. 
And today, for instance, in Mexico, during Good Friday, some pilgrims can be seen following the cross, whipping themselves with the whip across an exposed back until they are bloody and in horrible shape. Before Martin Luther learned of the gospel from the book of Romans, he practiced it. In Muslim Shia communities, this is also practiced to such an extreme degree, pilgrims can be seen literally put a knife into their eye and almost gouge it out. But why such a horrible practice? Well, in some Catholic circles, it's seen as a form of penance. And as horrified as we might be with this practice, I fear there are many Christians who flagellate themselves with their own guilt. They have an emotional whip in which they beat themselves constantly until every emotion has been beaten raw, but even so, nothing changes. None of that removes the propensity to sin. If that's you, hear now what I have to say. There are things that Christ has done for you, things the Father has promised you, power that is yours by the Holy Spirit, and all of this requires only faith. All you must do is trust the triune God. Your battle is not with anything other than faith. And until you grasp that, you will not know how to live the Christian life. Let's see if we can observe some of the differences between Romans 1 to 4 and Romans 5 to 8. In chapters 1 to 4, Paul aims to show that God's saving purposes in Christ are available to all, both Jews and Gentiles. Even though the promises were made in the Old Testament, they are not for Jews only. But no one can obtain these on their own. All fall short of the glory of God and the demands of the law. And even if people don't have the written law of God, that is, the Old Testament law, they still have a kind of law of conscience that sometimes excuses them and sometimes accuses them. And whether it's the Old Testament law or by observing our own behavior through the lens of an inner awareness of a moral universe, we all fall short. No one gets a passing grade. The only way anyone can be declared righteous is by faith alone in the finished work of Christ. But in chapters 5 to 8, the need for faith as the only way to obtain the righteousness that God demands is no longer front and center. The New Testament theologian Tom Schreiner points out that faith and believing, those two words, are mentioned 33 times in chapters 1 to 4, yet in chapters 5 to 8, those two words are only mentioned three times. So it's very easy to see a shift in this new section. Paul is now talking about something else. But, points out Dr. Schreiner, the word righteousness is used 31 times in chapters 1 to 4, and then Paul uses that same word 21 times in chapters 5 to 8. So clearly, righteousness is central in both sections. And yet, the way Paul uses the term righteousness shifts in chapters 5 to 8. In chapters 1 to 4, Paul teaches that in the gospel, in the good news that Christ died on our behalf in his death, a righteousness of God is revealed. He means by that that Christ's death on the cross is the ultimate demonstration of God's righteousness. God displayed in a way that nothing else can the penalty that sin deserves. And yet, in this place where God demonstrates his righteousness, he also demonstrates his mercy. God demonstrates that the death of his son is a sufficient sacrifice for our sins and that we are declared righteous by believing in Christ. But in chapters 5 to 8, Paul uses the term righteousness in a different way. 
So, for instance, in chapter 6, verse 13, Paul will say, Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness. Or in chapter 6, verse 20, he says, When you are slaves to sin, you are free in regard to righteousness. See, the shift in chapters 5 to 8 is from the righteousness of Christ applied to us, which is what chapters 1 to 4 teach, to the ethical righteousness being worked out in a believer's life, which is what chapters 5 to 8 teach. That is, experientially, as you live out your life as a believer, righteousness is being lived out in your daily life. Look at it this way. Chapters 1 to 4 are about our standing before God. In Christ, God has changed our citizenship. Once we were citizens of this world, lost in sin, but now we are citizens of heaven, made citizens by the righteousness of Christ. But in chapters 5 to 8, we learn some of the benefits that are ours now that our citizenship has been changed. We are free from condemnation. We have been set free from the power of sin. Indeed, we have been made dead to sin, and we have been made alive to righteousness so that we offer up our bodies as instruments of righteousness. This is describing how we now live. But did you notice that in both instances, both in chapters 1 to 4 and then later in chapters 5 to 8, we receive these benefits as a gift? And that's why I'm calling our study of Romans 5 to 8 the study of the power of the gospel. The gospel of Jesus Christ not only changes your status before God, the gospel also changes you. You have died to sin. Believe that. For Christ has died so that your desire for sinning should also die. Let me put it another way. I'm wanting to add pictures in your mind so that you'll grasp this thing. Imagine the difference between a tree and its fruit. The tree is the gospel, chapters 1 to 4, justification by faith. The fruit of the tree is chapters 5 to 8. What you see in those chapters is the fruit or the outcome of the gospel in the life of all who believe. But as we're going to find out as we read chapters 5 to 8, that the kind of fruit varies in each one of these four chapters. In chapter 5, we will read of the fruit of peace, peace with God. The long war between God and ourselves is over. Furthermore, that means we have access into his grace, and that grace which we now access produces endurance and character and hope. The hope Paul will speak about will have everything to do with a deep, abiding certainty in my salvation. It is this secure knowledge that when I stand before God, I will be accepted in his presence. Then we move to chapter 6 and learn of another fruit that comes from the tree of our salvation. This time, it's not peace with God. This time, it's transformation. This includes a new life, dying to sin and living to God. There we find how it is that our confidence in Christ's death on our behalf was actually the occasion of our own death. We will find out that we have died to sin. Indeed, we soon realize we have been delivered from one kind of enslavement into another. One slaves of sin, now slaves of Christ. That has been given to all believers. Then in chapter 7, a very difficult chapter, we'll see a third fruit from our salvation. This time it's liberty from the law. We are set free from the authority of the law. Just like a married person is bound to his or her spouse while that spouse is alive, yet when their spouse dies, they are released from the law of marriage. In the same way, the death of Christ released us from the law as a way to righteousness. And finally, we'll spend an inordinate amount of time in chapter 8. There we're going to learn about the fruit of living 
completely free of condemnation and of the reality of the power of the Holy Spirit in the life of every believer. And there also, we will end with the assurance that nothing but nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God. See, in Romans 5 to 8, we will find the words life and to live 24 times, words that you will find only two times in Romans 1 to 4. Do you notice the difference? What this section is all about is that which is universal. Christ's death on the cross now becomes personal. When we understand these four chapters, we will say, I not only believe this stuff of Christ dying for me, I'm living it. Reminds me of a bumper sticker on a car, and it simply said, God isn't dead. I spoke to him this morning. Do you see that? I don't just know that there is a God of love who sent his son to die for me, and I believe. I did more than that. I experienced it every single day. That's Romans 5 to 8, and that's the power of the gospel. John, thanks for today's message. It really sets the stage for an incredible series. But I want to ask you a question. Why do you think it's that so many people would likely say they have a handle on this doctrine, but find it so difficult to actually live it out? Yeah, I guess we're going to see, I mean, as people listen through this series, whether or not they'll say, I really did have a handle on it, because sometimes they want to say we don't. Uh, However, it is the common experience of every child of God to know that the struggle against sin is a harder struggle than we had anticipated. And the good news is God knows that. And the good news also is you are on the winning side. So especially as we go through chapter 6, where we'll talk about our own death to sin, I'm going to help believers to see how it is that that doctrine itself might be the most liberating thing that they can ever apply to their ongoing experience of learning victorious Christian living. So hang in there, and uh, I hope that as you continue to listen, you won't be discouraged, but you're going to be encouraged and live a much more victorious Christian life. Well, I hope you're looking forward to studying the power of the gospel in Paul's teaching in the book of Romans. In this first message, Dr. Neufeld has already introduced us to some of the key themes that we'll really get into over the next few weeks. This is a study not only of doctrine, but of how to live out the gospel and be victorious over sin. So let us be moved, changed, and awed by the gospel that has not just saved us, but guides us for all of life. Join us tomorrow as Dr. Neufeld continues this series, starting in Romans chapter 5, on the assurance of God's love. Back to the Bible Canada, leading you forward in your walk with Jesus every day. We hope that you were able to listen to Dr. Neufeld's recent New Year series called Remembering the Second Coming of Jesus. This one-week series provides what every Christian must know about the return of Christ. You may be asking, are we really living in the last days? What does it mean that Jesus is coming soon? And many other questions. Well, Dr. Neufeld helps us understand from a balanced biblical perspective these kinds of concerns as we go to the ultimate source to find them, God's Word. This series examines and clarifies a variety of key and relevant texts, including the book of Daniel, 1 Thessalonians, and Revelation. The second coming of Jesus is one of the most important doctrines for every believer to know and apply in their lives. It will transform the way we live today. So don't miss this opportunity to get Dr. Neufeld's series on CD for free this month 
as our gift to begin the new year. And please consider how you might continue to support this Bible teaching ministry with your prayers and financial support. To order your copy of Remembering the Second Coming of Jesus, call us at 1-800-663-2425 or email us at info at backtothebible.ca.